Hello, everyone, and welcome to MedTech Monday. We've heard some great news recently since our last episode. Two COVID vaccines are on the horizon. As Dr. Fauci said, the cavalry is on the way. Good news. We have a very informative uh, podcast for you today. Uh, we touch on a lot of areas, mostly diagnostics. Our guest today is Fernando Olivara, who's the Vice President for Strategic Development at Zymedica. But first, I'd like to take a moment to tell you about the sponsor of this podcast, who is Zymedica. And there was no mid-roll planned here. Uh, scheduling conflicts in the last minute got in the way. So I thought I would put this in myself. I didn't have to. I chose to. I've already been paid for all these episodes in full, and our agreement didn't include me doing a mid-roll or sponsored pitches. But I think overall, we've all learned a lot more about all the aspects of the medical world, from therapeutics to vaccines, and the absolute dedication of our medical community to battling this pandemic in the face of opposition from the very people that should be leading the charge to help protect us. And I, frankly, have learned more than I ever wanted to. And over the past episodes that Zymedica has sponsored, there have been four, and this is the fifth, and in general, over the whole run of MedTech Monday, I have found new appreciation and gratitude for those who are involved in the medical field and MedTech. And this is what the Zymedica website states. With 30 years of experience and hundreds of satisfied customers in healthcare, Zymedica can launch products faster and with higher market adoption. We use a human-centered, integrated process to create medical products that are thoughtfully designed, approved, and manufactured, and ultimately delivered to market. Now, companies are a congregation of human capital pursuing a singular goal. And from top to bottom, the people behind Zymedica have impressed me. From a board member racing up to Providence when this pandemic started to search for a piece of equipment that could potentially be used to increase ventilator capacity and 3D printed, to everyone I have had the pleasure to interact with over the course of these episodes, I remain duly impressed. And what you hear is the episode in its recorded and edited form. What you don't hear is our pre-episode discovery call, where we get to know one another a little bit. And I have never once come away not being impressed or better informed. I think they take human capital to a new level. Maybe that's why the human-centered process is so effective. Enough of that. Let's get on with the episode. MedTech Monday. Hello, I'm Danielle Sturm, and you're listening to MedTech Monday, a podcast series about medical technologies, trends, entrepreneurship, and innovations coming out of Southern New England. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Tom Chiginski. Hello, Tom. Hello, Danielle. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I couldn't be better, actually. We're here, we're here talking about MedTech, and we have Pfizer with an announcement for a vaccine, so it's a, it's a good day. We have, positive, we have positive vibes going in the world. Exactly. And I think we're going to be focusing, too, a little bit, um, a lot of it on um, COVID, because um, joining us today is guest Fernando Oliveira, um, who is going to be talking about diagnostics, which is one of the most focused on and fasting innovating sectors in medtech today due to the pandemic. Um, welcome, Fernando. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Danielle. Um, thank you, Tom. Pleasure to be, Pleasure to be here. Um, so, 
do you want to give us a little bit um, a background of your role at Zymedica and what you do there? And then we're also interested in kind of your background in the industry as well before Zymedica. Sure. So my name is Fernando Oliveira. Um, my title as Zymedica is VP of Strategic Development. Um, it's a commercial role. Um, I focus mostly on new opportunities and uh, continuing uh, business with the clients that we have already established that relationship with, looking for new opportunities to um, develop pro um, products, develop new features in products, um, start new programs with, within uh, accounts that we have um, already uh, established a relationship with. My background is I'm, I'm an electronic engineering uh, engineer, and um, I have a, a master's degree in technology commercialization. I have worked with a, uh, IVD companies, uh, in vitro diagnostic companies for over 15 years. I uh, have launched uh, and helped launch several different pr uh, products from concept to, to market, both in the U.S. and, and overseas. I transitioned from the technical role to a commercial role about seven years ago, and I've been working on the commercial side ever since. So at Medica, we are constantly in contact with companies, both blue chip companies and startup companies, that they have new technologies, new products that they want to bring to market. Um, startups don't have the full knowledge and capability to launch those products, so they count on Zymedica to do that. Everything from industrial design, human factors, all the way to regulatory and actual product launch, going through engineering and so forth. Um, so they count on Zymedica to do that work for them uh, using the, uh, our expertise. And, you know, more established companies, uh, they do have the expertise, but they just don't have the bandwidth. Uh, any company, um, you, you can go any company and, and you can see that their R&D, uh, there's a backlog in their R&D, so many ideas, so many products, so many things to, to develop, and they just have to prioritize because they just don't have the bandwidth. And it, it's expensive, right? You, you, you don't want to be um, bringing that many people to, to your payroll for a product that you're going to develop today and then stop. Uh, so... Uh, it makes more sense for these large organizations to partner with a company such as Zymedica um, because it's a more efficient way of bringing their products to market. Mm -hmm. And Fernando, I think before I met you to do this podcast, um, whenever your name would come up um, at Nemec and when we were working with Zymedicans, um, they would say that you are the diagnostics guy and you know a lot about diagnostics. Is that something that was in your background um, or have you worked kind of in that sector for a while? Uh, yeah, so my first job out of college was um, to be a service engineer for a diagnostic company um, and we used to um, service specifically uh, hematology analyzers from uh, from Beckman Coulter and from Abbott and um, you know those those instruments can be a little intimidating uh, if you look at the sheer size of it. Though we're talking about five-part diff analyzers uh, for blood CB uh, count, um, probably fifteen to twenty years ago. Those were massive uh, instruments. Uh, they would they would sit on the bench uh, in the lab in the hospital. They were fully automated, so you could run you know hundreds of, of samples per per hour, but there are so many moving parts, a lot of fluidics, a lot of uh, 
uh, chemistry going and, and reagents. Um, so we needed a really, um, uh, we, we really needed a lot of training to be able to be proficient in those instruments. Uh, and from there, I started servicing other instruments, uh, also everything diagnostic related, you know, from um, immunoassay to uh, electrolytes and so forth. And then um, I had opportunities uh, within that company to move to other uh, sectors, um, such as uh, production and manufacturing uh, of those instruments. Um, and then um, later in my career, I was uh, I switched to uh, commercial side business development, uh, where I would uh, promote and and sell those instruments overseas and find distributors and, uh, and you know travel around the world, opening markets for our products. Mm-hmm. And so, as someone like myself who works, I, I haven't been in the med tech industry long. It's been pretty much my whole my whole professional career, and it's it's really fun being in my position because I get to see so many different technologies come in in different sectors. Um, but that also means that I don't know a lot d- deep knowledge into each of those sectors. So I was thinking, for me and for our listeners, I think a good way to kind of start this podcast off is to kind of get a feel for what the diagnostics landscape looked like pre COVID. Because I, in our discovery call, you said it was it was kind of stalled in a sense, and COVID's really pushed it forward. So I think it would be interesting to talk about what it was like before, how COVID's changed it, and then we can talk about you know what's going on now. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, before COVID, um, the the diagnostics uh, was very much um, a um, you know, focused on proven technologies. Uh, that was the bread and butter of, of most companies. Um, low risk, you know, the, the razor blade business model that you're just selling reagents and you establish those instruments there and then you make your money on consumables and reagents. Uh, and obviously there was uh, molecular diagnostics, which was uh, booming, um, still is, but uh, that was uh, pre-COVID. So there was obviously a, a good focus there. Um, once COVID hit and, you know, it upended our lives uh, in all different sectors, but uh, diagnostics specific, all of a sudden, all eyes turned to diagnostics and, and uh, you know, government and industry and, and population realized we need, we need a, a, a better system here in diagnostics uh, to, to make this thing happens, uh, happen. And then there was a, a, a huge um, investment from the, uh, you know, d- different governments around the world trying to fund initiatives for um, ways of doing accurate and cheap and affordable and, and massive scale diagnostic tests for, for COVID. That was the first thing that they realized needed to be done. It's hard to keep track of who has the virus if you don't have a, a widely available, affordable uh, technology to detect that. Um, so then, at that point, several companies uh, saw an opportunity to bring their product to market. Um, companies that were working with molecular diagnostics, they realized, okay, we can we can make an assay here for to detect COVID, use our technology, uh, and and we'll be in the market. Uh, you know, other proven technologies such as uh, lateral flow, for example, which is same technology that you use on pregnancy tests, um, and that is a cheap. Uh, you know, huge uh, scalable option to detect. Uh, something is not as accurate uh, as, as a molecular, but uh, you can certainly uh, do that in a, in a large, large scale and, and more affordable. And, and so all these different 
companies, all these different technologies uh, came up and, and sought the opportunity. And um, many of them were funded uh, through uh, programs uh, such as NIH or, or RedX or, or even from, you know, initiatives from other countries to, to try to scale. Uh, I, I don't believe there will be uh, a single winner in this race. Uh, there is going to be several different um, solutions uh, and each of them suitable for different uh, events. So uh, it's, it's one thing if you want to do a, a COVID test in the military, and it's a different thing if you want to do a COVID test for kids before they go into school uh, or before you, you board a plane or you, before you start working at a company. So um, obviously they all want to make sure that um, you, you, don't, you don't have the, the, the virus load, uh, but there are different ways of, of achieving that. And um, you know, some of them, might, might make sense to pay $200 per test, uh, but some of them you need to test several times a week and, and, and that's just not a, a viable proposition. Interesting. I have a question about the efficacy of testing today before we go down the path. But, um, you know, you mentioned multiple locations and everything else, and uh, there are obviously multiple methodologies for testing out there. What is the efficacy? I've heard varying degrees of efficacy, efficacy on testing. Yeah, so... Uh, clearly, the um, uh, molecular diagnostics. If you if you go um, through this route, it's it's obviously the more uh, the most accurate option there. Mm -hmm. um, there, because the technology is um, compared to uh, say lateral flow, it's still in its infancy. There's still it's not a, uh, as developed. Uh, I, I believe there's a lot of progress um, that is being made and, and is going to be made uh, in this. Um, technology, you know, the, we have like RNA, uh, uh, mRNA, uh, DNA, different different systems that you can use um, to uh, detect the virus. Some of them you can use to, uh, you know, change um, the the DNA. But mainly, I think it's it's a it's a molecular diagnostics is definitely the the most accurate way of doing it. Um, it's just not affordable and it's just not uh, as fast. Today, if you want to run molecular diagnostic, the, the, the proven method through PCR, um, you're going to spend like two hours uh, to, to get a result. Um, so one of the um, options that people have, like hospital workers have, they would, they would test themselves and they would get the result the next day. So that's certainly a progress from what we had, you know, the same, same situation a, a year ago, you would have to wait a week or two to get the result. Uh, but it's, it, it's not workable for situations like we were saying, if you want to put that in on the stadium to admit people in, uh, so then so then you can't do that. You, you need some, some other way. So uh, that just takes me back to, there's my comment that I don't think there's going to be one solution, but just, you know, a uh, uh, plethora of solutions for different, uh, different cases or use cases, right? Right. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, in our last call too, you were, you were telling us that there was, you know, I don't want to call them opportunities, but there was some changes right now with COVID pushing, you know, the, the development of diagnostics forward and what have like the development timelines looked like and how have they, they changed? And have you been working on any of these, like at Zymedica, like how, what, how has, your work in developing them changed at Zymedica as well. 
Yep. So just just for uh, benefit of the listeners that uh, don't know Zymedica, Zymedica is a um, consultancy company, is a product development company. Uh, we have, uh, you know, oh, around 250 employees, um, most of them engineers, um, and we are uh, specialized in medical device um, and we um, companies come to us to develop a product and bring that product to market. So we have the expertise, we have the experience, we have about 30 years uh, in business. So uh, having said that, typically the IVD market, uh, the IVD industry is very heavily regulated, right? Starting with the FDA, but also ISO 14, uh, uh, 13485, um, CD mark and so forth. So uh, all these regulations make the progress of uh, every technology within this space um, move very slowly. Uh, you will see that, for example, wireless technology, uh, it's, it's well established. It's all over the place. Every house has different, uh, you know, wireless devices. Uh, but for a medical device to, to start using uh, wireless, uh, they, they usually follow the technology 10 years behind. So you, you have a device that works wireless fine. If you want to have a medical device that works fi- uh, uh, on wireless, it's going to take another five, 10 years for you to to get to that stage. Um, obviously we're past that now today we do have that, but I remember, um, you know, in, in the beginning, probably like 10, 15 years ago, uh, when the first ultrasound uh, imaging diagnostic devices were uh, starting coming equipped with, with wireless technology. Uh, and so there was a lot of concern about cybersecurity. The uh, FDA was putting um, um, a lot of um, checks and balances and, and regulations in place to make sure that you know user uh, patient data is not uh, compromised. So it, it is typical for the technology in, in medical devices to follow um, the technology of consumer goods, for example. However, when COVID hit, um, it, it was quickly realized that we cannot wait for the same process, development process to take place because we just won't have available time to us. Uh, it's a it's an emergency. It's a pandemic. We need to take care of that. So um, the uh, the FDA implemented uh, what they, they already had. They just made it uh, available the, the EUA, which is the Emergency Use Authorization, um, which is a. Uh, uh, Kind of a shortcut to the product development. The UA, the, the FDA will lack some of the um, uh, some of the um, um, not oversight. The oversight is still there, but lack some of the of the regulations and, and the documentation and the paperwork needed to 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 get approval to to put your product to market, uh, relying largely on um, simple declaration from the manufacturer. So, for example, instead of having to produce a thorough risk assessment documentation before you move that product to market. Under UA, um, you might be able to just bring your product to market and just certify that you have done that work and you will provide that documentation later on. So that was a huge opportunity for companies to bring their technologies to market. Uh, They they were funded, uh, they they were able to obtain funded and they were able to bring their product to market. Um, However, the all the regulatory work needs to be done in parallel, even though your product's already been sold because the emergency use authorization might be lifted at any time. The minute that the FDA considers that their emergency is not no longer in place, uh, then they might say, okay, now you need a regular 510K to be able to bring your product to continue marketing your product. And if the companies are not ready by then, they need to 
stop commercializing and recall all the products they have in, uh, on the market. So obviously no, no company wants to go through that, but the EOA was certainly um, the preferred path for most companies that everybody that was working with COVID, they, they were trying that route. And even within the EOA context, a lot has changed. Six months ago, the bar was a lot lower. All you have to do is like a product that you would you would show through you know twenty or thirty different uh, samples that it was it was working and had some kind of uh, re- reliability and and a good good accuracy and and you would be in, you know in business. Um, now it's still under EOA. It's no longer like that uh, because there is already enough products in the market uh, and it it doesn't make sense to bring products that are not um, uh, reliable enough, even under EUA. Uh, and some of the EUA's um, uh, emergency use authorizations that were granted before by the FDA, the FDA pulled those, uh, especially on the rapid test, because uh, the sensitivity um, was not there. So, What goes into, I go, go back to what you said about a risk assessment. What goes into a risk assessment in a document? How do they have to document risk? Well, uh, mainly safety of the of the user, right? But it goes from everything from um, you know usability studies, um, you know, making sure, for example, that a, a device, um, if if you have uh, a needle to 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 perforate the um, the cap of your uh, sample tube, that that is doesn't pose a, a risk to the user to to pinch your hand or something like that. If there's instructions in place. So there's one kind of risk. Obviously, the other kind of risk is the uh, actual efficacy of the product. For diagnostics, if it's not an invasive um, uh, product, it's not going to go into the the patient's body. Obviously, the risk is a lot lower. If you're talking about a medical device where, you you know, it's an implantable device or something that's going to be in contact with the patient's body, uh, so then the risk is a lot uh, higher and uh, the bar that you need to... uh, to go through is, uh, is, is higher. You also mentioned before wireless devices. I mean, we're in the age of IOT, obviously, yep. uh, and IOT is inherently vulnerable. Um, what type of risk assessment does an organization have to go through for a diagnostic device that may be communicating with other devices for speed and efficiency uh, on, on the cyber side? Yep, that's a very good question. So, um, it, it used to be that um, the device was one, right? And the software was uh, just, a, just a part of it. Um, today, uh, the software development goes in parallel. We actually, at Zymedica, we have obviously our software and digital team. Uh, and when we have a program, um, we, we do that in separate uh, lanes is what we call it. We do the engineering is in one lane and software development is, is another lane. Risk assessment is done for both risk for not only the uh, physical uh, risk um, or, or, or the, the risk to uh, about a, a certain assay, but also the, the software. Uh, and you, you have to be uh, compliant with the standard like HIPAA and uh, making sure that the patient information is, is secure. Um, we all have seen you know situations recently where uh, you have hackers going into hospital systems and, and, and just shutting down the whole thing and asking for ransom, which is like, uh, crazy if you think about it. Uh, imagine if that if they get access to uh, medical devices, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. And do those do those devices just my own my own benefit? Do those devices sit in their own 
internal network or are they connected within the organization's network? Uh, they will do both. So there's uh, usually when when you have um, uh, any any kind of diagnostics device, they have what we call um, communication with the LIS, which is uh, laboratory interface uh, system. Yep. And you send the patient's result. You get the patient the, the workload. So for example, you have a, an instrument that's connected to your network. Um, the lab technician goes in in the morning and they see, you know, the, the work list coming in. You have already 25 patients scheduled. Uh, the samples are coming in, they're barcoded. You scan that, that sample, um, get the result, and the instrument automatically send the result of that particular test under that patient ID that came in uh, through the lab. So um, uh, the LIMS uh, laboratory information management system uh, will will manage that. It will not only put the order in, but also the result will already fall uh, matching everything to that patient ID. Um, Interesting. So for devices that are not connected um, into the lab or devices that are, skip that, but any type of uh, software development, you're definitely doing perimeter testing and white hat hacking to make sure that these devices are up to speed and can be updated and there's no vulnerability. Absolutely, yep. And then like Great. just like any other device, um, you have a multi-generational plan and then you know yep. you have revision two and three and four of software even after the, uh, the software is already, the instrument is already in the market, um, you have sure. new revisions and um, new features being, uh, being added to the product. Great, okay, thank you. What are some other things that um, I guess COVID has affected and in, in, in not just devices, but med tech as well? I know um, you mentioned that a lot of manufacturing has been shifted from China back to the U.S. Is that something that it's going to you, you see that's going to keep happening or continue on kind of after this? Um, yes, I think um, regardless of what direction, um, you know, politics take us. Uh, as far as um, you know, commercial relationship with other countries, I think it's evident to everybody that uh, healthcare is a matter of national security, and we cannot rely and have you know therapeutics or diagnostic products uh, manufacturing over manufactured overseas and, and have no ability to control that uh, within our borders. Um, specifically, in the case of China, if we relying you know. 80 to 90% of our production to a single, a single country, uh, a country that might be adversary uh, to the United States. So obviously there's, there's huge um, concerns about this uh, moving forward. And long-term, I think it, it will benefit us in the sense that you're bringing that um, capability, technology, uh, maybe even jobs domestically, and, uh, and we're able to control um, at, at least the, uh, the, a minimum production to to tackle uh, epidemics and pandemics, uh, if not for COVID, but for the future ones, because uh, we, we never know what what the future stores, right? Right. <laughs> Especially after this right. year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, just as, as as an example, Denmark was considering, you know, killing off its mink um, population because of a mutation of COVID over there. Um, they've since rescinded that order and they're not going to kill. I didn't know they actually bred minks for anymore, but they do. Um, but they were considering killing off their, um, their mink population due to uh, a mutation. No, that, that is, uh, if anybody 
told us that a year ago, nobody would believe it. If anyone told us a lot of things a year ago, no one would believe it. That's for sure. <laughs> Um, we won't go there. Another thing that I, I was pretty cool when I asked you, because we I, I was wondering about, so we're at the point where a lot of rapid tests are becoming, you know, accessible to people. I was actually just reading an article this morning, how I think two days ago, Rhode Island got like 500,000 rapid tests that they're going to make available to um, citizens. Um, but I asked you about like at-home testing and kind of where that's going. And you told me that that people are working on that and it it, it, it could be a possibility soon. Can you elaborate? More um, yeah, that? absolutely. So one of the things that uh, you, uh, it's worth clarifying is when you have a, a device that's going to be used in a laboratory, uh, that's one standard that you need to meet. When you have the same device, but now you want to use that uh, device or technology um, at, at home, um, the, the standard is higher because there, the uh, expectation is that the, uh, the user doesn't have any um, you know, domain expertise at all. None, just- right? So any any mistake can be made. You have to cover all your bases and make sure that it's safe to be used in a house where, you know, children might be able to access that. Uh, so the same warnings and, and the usability and the way uh, this um, device is used, um, it becomes more difficult. Uh, the approval uh, for from the FDA for those kind of uh, products also takes longer. Um, they, they're taken into a higher standard. So, for example, in the lab, you obviously have lab technicians. They, they, will, they are able to uh, prepare the sample. If the sample is saliva, but you need to prepare that um, and amplify that and then pipette that into a, a, a another tube and, and go on with your test, lab technicians can do that. You can't expect a, uh, you know, a, a home user to do that. So they need something simple whereby they... They just spit inside the tube and, you know, the tube and the device will do everything else for it. All the, you know, lysing and amplification and, and detection, everything is done and the result comes out. Um, so, but, but that's something that um, several companies are working um, uh, to do. Uh, some of them found like a kind of a, a shortcut of somewhere in between where they send a, actually, which is just a sample collection device to the house. Um, and then the user just uh, used either a nasal swab or, or saliva put inside a tube and then just ship that back to the company. And the company will then get that sample and, and run through their lab devices and then um, provide the results to the client a week later or a few days later or something like that. Uh, obviously, it's not, it doesn't have the same convenience as a true home use test where you can get the result right there and then. Um, but there are several companies working on it, uh, including at, Z- at Zymedica. We do have some programs um, um, with, with that um, end goal in mind. Interesting. I have a question, and this may not be, and I'll take it out if I marked it so I can take it out. But um, what about aging of a vaccine? And I, I'm probably putting that in the wrong way. Um, we've obviously they've defined the efficacy of this of this first generation. Is there a time way to accelerate the efficacy over time of the vaccine that the, where the vaccine might wear off over time? Um, 
I, I don't know I'm, because I'm not in this space, so I don't know. But I'm just, I was just wondering because there were some number of people on various, you know, TV programs, talking heads, talking about um, a number of, of issues. Yeah, well, um, I'm not an, an expert uh, in, in this, um, you know, epidemiology or, or vaccine field, but my understanding is that um, we're too early uh, into COVID to really understand uh, if this vaccine that they're coming are going to be, you know, what level of, uh, efficacy it will have, and also if it will be also usable next year. Like for example, the the flu vaccine, you you know you take it every year, uh, but the vaccine needs to be modified every year because there's new new um, new, strains. new strains of of, of the virus. Um, I don't think we um, know enough about COVID to see to understand if this pattern will be replicate in, in the COVID uh, virus or not. Um, hopefully it will not, right? But um, I, I don't think we have enough enough data and we haven't uh, been with the disease long enough or with the virus long enough to, to have that answer. So ergo, all these testing methodologies that are being developed at, at multiple levels for use cases are going to be very important going forward, this vaccine or no vaccine, because we don't really know. This is a moving target as we go along. Correct. Um, the, the the detection method uh, likely will remain the same, right? You you will you're going to be able to use the same product to detect that if you have the, the virus or not. Right. However, the vaccine needs to be um, tailored to that specific strain if there is a mutation uh, in the virus, which uh, there is no indication that there is, but uh, it hasn't been proved that there isn't. Also, so right. Thank you. And. How about outside of COVID? What was the what is what was the diagnostics industry kind of working on? Not not focusing on. I mean, they can use the same technologies for the the coronavirus and detecting that. But outside of that, um, what were kind of the big things in the industry? And I think you mentioned RNA and qRNA, if I'm correct. Um, yes, correct. So you have um, uh, different technologies being um, developed uh, within the molecular. Uh, space, but um, they all share the same uh, goal, which is detect earlier and detect more precise, um, because it's it's a lot easier to prevent than to um, cure. So, um, you know, technologies such as um, that are widely available, so like for example, twenty three and Me, where you can um, you know run your your, your genome and then see if you have specific genes that um, might put you at a higher likelihood of developing some uh, specific disease, either, you know, uh, Parkinson's or cancer or specific type, specific types of cancer. Um, and then you might act on that, right? If you, if you, if you know that you have, um, you know, a high uh, probability of developing some kind of coronary disease, so then you, you probably want to take care of your of your heart early on and and, and don't don't do uh, you know irresponsible things uh, with it um, and same same thing for um, for other diseases um, you know th there are um, women for example that once they learn that they have a higher probability of developing for example breast cancer um, they voluntarily go there and go through surgery to to remove. Um, uh, to remove the the, the breasts and and, and uh, put implants in place, which is uh, a radical thing, if if you think about it, but it's um, safer in the long run than 
contracting the disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's that's all my questions I have for today, Tom. I don't know if there's anything else or Fernando that you want to talk about before we wrap it up. No, I, I you know this is I I felt like I'm always the color man in these. There's the detail person here, the detail with the post question on the color man trying to bring in a little yeah. external um, things. But you know I think it's quite interesting where we are with from a from a risk standpoint where the general public doesn't really understand risk assessment at all, right? If we understand, you know the the average Joe out there is thinking, well, this just gets developed fast, and um, you know there's there's not a lot of risk assessment in there, and. Is there a point in the future where the risk assessments, um, you know, we talked about a long timeline going to develop a product or uh, a vaccine or something else. Is there a way to streamline this process of, of approval in the future to make our overall healthcare system more efficient, more responsive, because this is going to be, you know, who knows, this could be something, this become, you know, a regular occurrence every five or 10 years, who knows, but is there a way that we can actually streamline the process of approval um, to, to become more efficient and more effective and more agile? Well, I certainly we're um, uh, there are diff- different approaches to that. Um, even within Zymedica, we have uh, different paths that you can pursue. Um, one of them, uh, I'm just going to cite as an example uh, you can develop a product, uh, and there is a path within the um, uh, FDA for it, which is like if you develop a product before it goes to IVD, which is really to get clinical diagnostics, uh, you use that same product for what we call RUO, which is research use only. Um, so that gives you the opportunity to uh, release that product, uh, sell to uh, laboratories, but those laboratories can only use that product for research purposes. So they will use that to gather data, to compare data to predicate uh, instruments. For example, get a, get an instrument that's already out there, um, you know, running molecular diagnostics or any kind of other technology uh, reliably. Uh, run the same sample on your RUO device and and, and the predicate unit uh, and see how they correlate. Um, and you know test, see uh, inefficiencies and risks, things that are not uh, done very well, gather that feedback. And then from the RUO device, then the RUO actually will work as a stepping stone until you go through your full um, IVD. You know, the way you do that, um, talking about expedite the process and and making it more efficient uh, is is really all a a matter of trade-offs, right? Uh, The faster you go, um, the more risks you're going to, you're going to incur. There's, there's really not much you can do about that. Uh, And and the FDA is is cognizant of that. And and for example, emergency use authorization is one way that they found, okay, let's, let's make the bar uh, lower the bar a little bit. So companies can bring their product to market we understand that there are going to be more risks involved with it, uh, but we're willing to take those risks just because of the severity of the situation currently. Um, as soon as things get back to normal or starts going back to normal, then that bar is is, is being brought up again. Um, I think you, you can see it from both sides, right? I, I, I can see it from the manufacturing side because there is um, – um, a frustration um, on the manufacturing side or why so many regulations, why this takes so long, why is it so expensive um, to, to develop that? But, but then if you are the patient and you are in the hospital, 
Um, you want to make sure that once you're, you know, there's some device going into your body for, for uh, a biopsy or, uh, uh, you know, any, any uh, you know, a stent uh, implant or, or, or anything like that, um, you, you have to be very comfortable that that thing is 100% sh- um, uh, safe. Right. And, uh, you know, even with all those regulations in place, even with all this, um, there's been countless um, cases where, uh, you know, well-established companies, you know, leading in, in, in the segment, uh, they have to recall products because, and, and then they have to go and, and go through settlement with, with clients because the product that they use uh, turned out not to be uh, safe as they uh, thought it was. And, and even the FDA approved and everything else. So um, I, I think it's, it's a fine line to walk. Uh, there's, there's risks uh, on, on both sides. At the same time, you can't say, okay, let's eliminate all the risks completely and take 50 years to bring a product to market. Right. It's, it's not practical. So um, there, there has to be a compromise there. Um, and my assumption that there's been an explosion of data recently, like given the past five, even five years, between the previous five years, the explosion of data that's, um, that's acquired during testing, um, that is there... Is there a normalization of data between the regulatory environment and the development environment so that people can, you know, exchange data much more rapidly than they could? I think there, I think there is, um, there, there is, um, data being, um, uh, provided and, and, and exchanged, but I will, I will take that comment and, and I'll just bring another, um, another twist here is that the, the same data, as you mentioned, the explosion of data, there are some technologies there that were there for forever, but now with the, um, you know data analysis, artificial intelligence, um, companies are able to utilize that huge amount of data and uh, to better predict um, uh, likelihood of of, uh, of a diagnostics. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, if you go look at um, you know a, a CBC count or or a, uh, blood cell count, right? There's like typically 20 to 25 parameters to 30 parameters, depending on the instrument that you're using, uh, that they can ex- extract from, from a blood sample. So you're going to look at your platelets, uh, red blood cell, white blood cell, and, and all the components of each of those, uh, hemoglobin and so forth. So um, if you have a massive amount of data that you can use artificial intelligence to triage and try to identify patterns. Um, you can use the same test that's been out there forever uh, and go through a certain combination or likelihood of certain uh, diseases uh, and, and interpret that in a way that no doctor would be able to just because, you know, as, as experienced as a doctor can be, you won't be able to analyze and evaluate hundreds of millions of results and come up with a pattern from that. So um, there are a lot of companies investing heavily in this, Uh, a lot of technology companies that they're not medical companies, but they're jumping into the medical space because they have the data analysis capability uh, and they want to do just that. They want to have access uh, to uh, patient results um, and they want to be able to use those results and that data to um, better predict, predict early. So if you could get that, if you get the same CBC count 
test, for example, and, and out of that, you know, the, the machine learning capability would be able to tell you, okay, based on the results here that we see, this person has a 65% chance of developing this, there's a 95% chance of doing this, or a, just a 10% chance of having this something else. Uh, that would be a valuable tool, and it, you don't need a new technology for that other than um, machine learning and artificial intelligence. There are a lot of companies investing heavily on this, um, and then obviously combined to that, if you can if you can combine molecular um, um, diagnostics, which actually taking you know huge uh, amount of data uh, from cells and from um, DNA, and combine that with artificial intelligence, that's that's uh, I think that can be a next revolution there on, on diagnostics. That's the holy grail. Yep. That's it. I don't have any other questions. As usual, I, you know, I come to this not from the med tech space and every, every podcast I learn a lot. And I thank you very much for that knowledge transfer. <laughs> thank you, Tom. Thank you. Thank you, Fernando. Um, if anyone today kind of wants to, you know, either get in contact with Zymedica or yourself, um, what's the best way to do that? Is it your email or LinkedIn? Yep. Sure. My email or my LinkedIn, uh, my email is folivera at zymedica.com. Uh, and my LinkedIn, you can find me, um, uh, Fernando Oliveira at Zymedica. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Danielle. Nice being here. Awesome. Thank you.